Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. He showed that true liberty was built on the concept of virtue. And virtue was the willingness of men to give up their private interests for the common good of society. That's Bob Rupert. And he's working on a series of articles featuring an 18th century historian named Catherine Macaulay with very strong views on the American Revolution. She's an Englishwoman, and her story is absolutely fascinating. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni. Available now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We have a great show for you today. Our guest today is a longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Bob Rupert. Bob has specialized in in unique studies of individuals achieving and doing great things within the context of the American Revolution. And his newest writing project, the one we'll focus on today, is a very interesting, fascinating, and I think important study of an 18th century historian named Catherine Macaulay. Now, one of the things I love to do is talk about the business and the game, if you would, of history. Historians love to dig into that. And one of the things we don't do enough in the 18th century is talk about who is writing history at the time. Well, that's a very simple answer. Uh, and fortunately, we're, we're mostly past this, but it's a lot of old, rich guys in reality. Uh, not everyone could write history, because in order to do that, to write and research, as Bob goes into in the interview today, Access to public libraries just did not exist. So you had to A, have a lot of time, and B, have a lot of money already saved up. That meant that individuals from the working class could never really engage in the field of history. That is only magnified in the figure of Catherine Macaulay because, uh, as the name sounds, Catherine Macaulay is a woman writing very big, very broad-spectrum histories in the latter part of the 18th century, certainly doing something a woman was never expected to do in her own time. She also engages in a bit of commentary about the current imperial crisis, what we know here in the United States as the American Revolution, unknowingly in her own way, uh, writing history as it goes. For her, it was simply political commentary. She'll write back and forth from England to figures like John Adams, Samuel Adams, and even George Washington throughout the length of the Revolution. And now looking back at her life, and for our guest Bob, uh, this will be done in a three or even four part series of articles. It's just so big, and there's just so much to get into. So today, our discussion is Catherine Macaulay, a wonderful historian of the 18th century, a wonderful political commentator of the American Revolution, and something of a pioneer, not just for uh, the 18th century role of individuals writing history, 
but of course for women of the 18th century. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bob Rupert. Bob Rupert, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you could, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've, uh, I've been an elementary teacher. I've been an elementary administrator. I've been a high school teacher, and I've been a high school administrator. And after 35 years, I, I thought it was time for me to do something else. And about eight or nine years ago, I went on it. Well, let me back up from that. In 1963, you know, I was only was that be eight years old. My mom and dad took my two sisters, my brother and I, on a trip to Newport, Virginia. And one of the places my mom was adamant that we go was this town that that was. It looked like it hadn't even been built yet, and it was all muddy and all this. And it was the beginning of Williamsburg, Virginia. And that was my introduction by my mother to understanding the founding of our country. Now, to come forward, about eight or nine years ago, I had really started to get interested in the study of our, of our beginning. And so I convinced my wife to let me go on a driving trip. Now, I live in the Chicagoland area. Um, so I drove, I, I flew to, uh, Dulles airport, rented a car, and then I drove through Virginia and, uh, I had already been to, uh, Mount Vernon a number of times, but I went to Jefferson's place, his home, uh, Monticello. I went to James Madison. I think it's pronounced Montpelier. I went to James Monroe. I went to, uh, Patrick Henry's home. Uh, I went to, to John Marshall's and had about a two-hour conversation uh, with the curator there. It was wonderful. And then I, I, I went to the Virginia State Capitol in Richmond because I really wanted to see some things there, the Hooten statue of, uh, of Washington, et cetera. So I, that really got me going. I'm, I retired about three years ago, and so I've convinced my wife that this is what I'm going to do to relax. And, and in the beginning, that didn't sit too well with her relax, but, but she's, she's gotten very comfortable with it. What I've done is I have decided that I'm going to continue to work at this. Uh, visiting and evaluating teachers on the high school level, junior teachers in history classes, doing observations in their room. I was in a number of history classes, and I just think there's a lot to our founding that isn't in even an AP history book. Uh, and so what I have done in the last two years, maybe three, you'd have to ask Don, um, I write only about people that were in France, England, Holland, but were pro-colony. And what they did to either keep the colonies informed or to spread the news from the colonies to, to England or France or Holland. Um, and it's, I, I, I don't know what to say, except I'm going to keep on doing it because I think it's important for future generations to know in Paul Harvey's phrase, the rest of the story. Your article on Catherine McCauley is very interesting. Uh, and she's a very fascinating woman. What first brought you to this subject? Well, it was, I guess it was a fluke 
because my idea of writing is I continually read and read until there might be one sentence in a book that just perks my interest or the name of one person. And I was reading uh, some letters of Franklin. I was reading uh, some letters of John Adams. And then I came across a condolence letter um, for the Boston Massacre. And it was from this woman named Catherine McCauley. And I had never heard of her. And I knew that women writers uh, in the 18th century uh, they were few and far between. And this woman had a style of writing that I thought she's extremely educated. She's, um, she's sharp. She's crisp in what she wants to say. Uh, and so I thought, I want to see something about her. So I looked her up and it was very hard to find things because Catherine McCauley doesn't have a journal and never kept a diary. And the main person in her life was her brother John, and he never kept a diary or a journal. And at the early part of the 20th century, the home that the Macaulays at one time had lived in burned, and a lot of the family records were destroyed. So it's very hard to find things on her. Uh, so you just have to dig and dig and dig, and you don't find really too much except letters to her and some of her responses back. And she was, in my mind, the, the equivalent to Mercy Otis Warren in the American Collies, the female historian. And so the more I read about her, the more she took you back to that Anglo-Saxon England and the annals of Greece and Rome, and that was the basis for her Republican views, the more she interested me. And so... Uh, it's probably been a five or six month search to get uh, copies or even parts of letters that she wrote to people in the colonies or that the people in the colonies wrote back to her. Now, now fortunately, Franklin and Adams letters are well kept. And so I've been able to find some and then, you know, it's just you got you got to hound them down. And um, so the first article I wrote is uh, from 1763 to 1772. Um, and then what she did is, well, let me, let me, let me back up. Um, she was born in 1731 to, a, to not a wealthy family, but, but a, a family that, that was uh, landed uh, in 31 in Kent, England, uh, um, which is just uh, east of London. And she had two sisters and she had, I'm sorry, she had one sister and two brothers. Um, her mother died when she was two. So her upbringing, her educational upbringing was not necessarily done by her mother, but was done by a governess. And her father wasn't all that excited about the capabilities of the governess. Um, then there was one day when she was in her late teens that she walked into her father's library and she, uh, she was curious. So she just took a book. It happened to be a history book. It was one of the histories of, of certain people uh, in Rome and she read it. And that sort of just opened her eyes 
to understanding notions of liberty, of representation, of um, uh, elected representatives, things of that nature. And and from there, she um, she started to read more, and she started to read more. And so she had no formal education. Uh, she couldn't read Greek. She couldn't read Latin. She never took classes in uh, either literature or in the art uh, and technique of writing. And so it makes her um, very, very different. At her time, this obviously was very different. A woman did not uh, write uh, professionally. A woman just didn't do it. Then she didn't write history. I mean, that was one of the bastions for men. And then, of course, they didn't write scholarly history. And last but not least, um, they didn't write from the Whig or Republican perspective. And so that that's how she got started. Uh, and she took on the task, which was very mighty, of David Hume had written a history of England for the 17th century. And that century was basically when you had the Catholic kings in England. You had uh, James I, Charles I, Charles II, and James II uh, for almost the entire century. And uh, David Hume's history, which for 70 years had been the history of that period, was written from the Tory perspective, which basically meant that it it downplayed um, a lot of the true original freedom Republican thinkers of the time. So she decided that she was going to write for the first time a Whig Republican history of that period so that what, from her perspective, really happened and the men that literally put their lives on the line for what they thought about freedom, about corruption in government, about the royal prerogative, about arbitrary decisions um, by the king, um, that that was also made known. And so it was just, it was not only out of the ordinary and not only extraordinary, it had never been done. And so she ended up writing eight volumes. I do think that the writing of the volumes um, had a significant effect on her health. One thing that you stress in your article is Catherine's love and desire for liberty. Now, that's a word we use a lot, especially on this podcast, and many times it can feel like the Patriots sort of have the sole possession of that banner, liberty. Uh, What did liberty mean to her as an English person in the 18th century? Um, She, when she, um, in, she got married in, in 1760, and at the age of 29, and her husband, who loved her dearly, um, he died in 1766. Now, I had just said that her first volume came out in 1763, and she was beginning to work on her second volume. 
the, the problem at the time was there were no public libraries. So the only way that you could have access to original tracks, to original pamphlets, to original books was if you had contacts with some well-to-do people that had extensive libraries. Well, in 1766, after the death of her husband, she started to move in two groups. One group were the followers of John Wilkes. Now, John Wilkes, uh, without going much into him, he basically was an extreme radical. Uh, he had published things in his Britain uh, newspaper that were contrary to the king and parliament. Uh, they did everything they could to get him expelled from parliament. He had to flee the country for a period of time to come back. Um, so that was one group. And principally, her brother was really more involved in that group because her brother was interested in political strategy. Uh, and that's right up Wilkes Avenue. Uh, she was really a political polemicist. And so the group that she spent more time with were called the real Whigs. Now, the real Whigs were men that um, they, they believed in what the Commonwealth men in the middle of the 16th century did about freedom, about corruption, uh, about liberty. And the, the men in the 16th century that were considered the Commonwealth men were men like John Milton, John Locke, Algernon Sidney, James Harrington. Um, and so she, with these men, Thomas Hollis being the leader of them, would discuss almost daily and debate and challenge each other's positions. And this helped crystallize her position as a, a, a real Whig, a, a, if you will, a, a modern Commonwealth person. Um, she believed that man had natural rights and freedoms and that government was created to protect those rights and freedoms. And that when a government denies, uh, obstructs those rights and freedoms, man is justified to either alter, rebel against, or abolish that form of government. In her history, that she was writing and which she started to write again in 63. She showed that true liberty was built on the concept of virtue and virtue was the willingness of men to give up their private interests for the common good of society. And the other thing that uh, she attempted to show was that independence was the unwillingness of men to be constrained by arbitrary government. Uh, she believed, and, and the Whigs believed, that self-government and the rule of law were uh, the basis, and I guess you could say the expression of independence. And again, I'm talking in huge generalities, but this is, she was a polemicist now. Uh, they, they talked about the theory of government, not necessarily the day-to-day -day response to problems in the government. Uh, Self-government and the rule of law, and the rule of law was huge to John Adams. Self-government and the rule, rule of law for her um, were the basis 
and the expression of independence. She believed self-government was built on representation and office rotation. So no taxation without representation, there's part of it, and office rotation that a man wasn't elected to uh, parliament or, or to any governing body for life, that there should be frequent elections because if there were frequent elections, you reduce the chance of corruption in, in that body. Um, she believed that, that democracy could never be preserved from what we would call today anarchy without representation. And that representation could never be free from any sort of outside exertion uh, if there wasn't rotation. Now, that's sort of a complicated thing, but those were what she believed after reading for many years, after going through text. She, Thomas Hollis, who was sort of the unofficial leader of the Whigs, uh, he had been collecting pamphlets and tracts and essays and books for many, many years. And all of a sudden, uh, in 19, I want to say 65, 145 volumes were delivered to her residence. And those volumes were written during the 1640s and 1650s. And no other historian had ever had access to a pool of thought like this. And she never learned who they came from. It was only later in his diary was it learned that Thomas Hollis sent them anonymously to her. And it was from those tracks that not even David Hume had ever seen when he wrote his Tory perspective on the 17th century. No one had ever used those. And so uh, she was handed by the head of the Whig group, her own, if you will, personal li library to work from. But liberty, getting rid of corruption, and corruption was the result she believed in the denial of self-government and the refusal of rotation. Those were so big to her, and she believed, in essence, that what had happened in the 17th century during uh, the reign from James I to James II, that that was being replayed in the 18th century at that moment in England and in the colonies. And so part of her writing was to, one, indirectly point that out, but two, to also assist the colonies in, in, get, in learning from the past. Anyone who's ever written a biography or researched an individual uh, can tend to fall in love with their subject, maybe is the term we could use. How did Catherine McCauley challenge you, and uh, how did she surprise you? Um, most of the documents that you can get, either written by her or to her, are between 1763 and 1760. 
77 when she remarries in Bath, England. After that, she she pretty much stops writing for a period of time because she feels that the government is intercepting her mail. And her brother, who was as honest as the day is long, was accused a couple of times of doing something illegal and almost being imprisoned. And the facts that they were alleging could only have been surmised from some of her communications. So she stopped writing from that period. Then starting in 83, all of a sudden, you start to see the, the, the letters going back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, I, my first article that I, I wrote and, and the journal has been really nice enough to consider publishing went from 63 to 72. Then I did an article because it was a very important time from 72 to the beginning of 74. And now I'm working on the article from 75 to 77. After that, when in 83, that'll be my fourth article if I ever get to it. Uh, John Adams had been her biggest writer. I mean, he wrote better than 10 letters to her, and she responded to everyone before 77. But in 83, the person that writes to her the most and she writes back to the most is George Washington. Um, and I mean, her story gets even more remarkable as it goes along, because she, I think, one of the strongest pamphlets uh, on describing really the problems between England and the colonies weren't written by Jefferson, weren't written by John Adams, weren't written by John Dickinson. Thomas Paine did a nice job. But from the English side, supporting what was going on, her pamphlet, uh, where she addresses the citizens of England, Scotland, and Ireland, is just unbelievable. Wow, now this is this is fascinating. You actually have... Uh, her corresponding with major patriot figures, John Adams and George Washington, as you mentioned. Uh, what else did she say about the revolution at this point? Um, Catherine wrote to uh, a, a number of colonists. Um, I'll just give you the names of a couple. She wrote to John Adams, Abigail Adams, Sam Adams, uh, Ezra Stiles, who was the president of um, Yale College. Um, just a lot of people. And in writing to them, she would sometimes give them advice. And sometimes she would just respond to their concerns. So here's a couple of things. James Otis uh, Jr., um, she, he had written to her, and here's what she wrote back about her feelings. Your patriotic conduct and great abilities in defense of the rights of your fellow citizens claim the respect and admiration of every lover of their country and mankind. I beg leave to assure you that every partisan of liberty in this island sympathizes with your American brethren, have a strong sense of the virtues and a tender feeling for their sufferings. And there is none among us in whom such a disposition is stronger than myself. After the, after the quote, Boston massacre, she wrote to Sam Adams, I think myself much honored by the town of Boston for the compliment of transmitting the narrative relative to the massacre perpetuated by the ministry on the 5th of March. In condoning with you on that melancholy event, your friends 
find a considerable alleviation in the opportunity he has given you of exhibiting a rare and admirable instance of patriotic resentment tempered with forbearance. She writes back to him, every service which is in my power to perform the town of Boston, you may command and may depend upon a faithful and ardent execution. Um, so her heart was in with the colonists in their struggle. Yes, she wrote eight volumes, and they span from 1763 to 1783. And yes, there were colonists that wrote important pamphlets, whether it's John Dickinson, whether it's Thomas Paine, uh, and others. But she wrote a pamphlet, but she didn't write it like from the perspective of Thomas Paine or as a colonist. She wrote it as a statement to her fellow citizens in England, Scotland, and Ireland about the present situation in the colonies. And it is an unbelievable document. If, if someone wanted to read from a pro-American position, but living in England, this is a phenomenal thing to read. Um, it's not that long, uh, and I don't have the exact title in front of me, but it's, it's to the effect to the, to the citizens or inhabitants of England, Scotland, and Ireland about the present uh, discontent in the colony, something to that nature. It is a terrific thing to read. It, gives, it, it basically condenses her eight volumes and also the... Um, abuse happening in the colonies all in one document. And so I would recommend that um, if someone wanted to uh, understand her and understand her thought process, this is a short pamphlet. It probably came out in a pamphlet form. I'm not sure, but it would be something very interesting to read. Catherine McCauley had such an incredible life. It's going to take you several articles just to even begin to summarize it. Uh, how should we think of her? How should we remember her? What should her legacy be? She's, well, if I had, let me say this. If, 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 if she gave me carte blanche to carve out her epitaph on, on, on her uh, gravestone, this is what I, would, what I would put, because it stresses the four things that I think are crucial about what she did. She was the greatest female writer of scholarly history in 18th century England. Um, is she, she, she wrote a pamphlet on the education of women. She felt very strongly about it, like Abigail Adams did, like, like Mercy Otis Warren did. Um, but I... You know, people like Mary Wollens got, uh, did much more. But in terms of breaking the glass ceiling, uh, Catherine McCauley, the greatest female writer of scholarly history in 18th century England, shattered it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, 
I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.